0: how one woman turned her pain into purpose and went from being a victim of child abuse and sex trafficking to being named woman of the year for Sonoma County 2022 You're listening to Rock Your Kindness a new podcast presented by Love What Matters and dedicated to highlighting incredible stories surrounded by kindness I'm your host Tracy Theron Author, speaker, cancer thriver, and online creator. But what I really love to do is inspire others to be kinder to themselves and those they encounter. Because you never know how your kindness can change the trajectory of not just your life, but the life of another. Before listening to this episode, please be aware that we will be discussing sensitive topics such as child abuse and sex trafficking.
1: My abuse started when I was four years old. I was physically abused and then I was also sexually abused when I was with my grandmother's household. A sense of family was very important to me growing up and I didn't have that ability within a family. My dad wasn't around. He came here and there, but he wasn't in the household as much as I needed him to be there. My mom was a single parent. She raised us, me and my brothers, as a single parent on welfare. And so we were living in poverty. My abuse started at four, And when that happened, it just continued to happen when I got back with my mother, because my mother had left me with my grandmother for just a short period of time. But when I got back with my mother, the physical abuse continued to happen. For a long time, I was angry because of all this that had happened, all the abuse that took place. I was angry. I didn't understand. It was hard for me when I reclaimed my life and I started to do something different and lived a healthy lifestyle. I still had that anger side of me. Like I see other family members where they're so connected. They're so connected. I go to family functions. And everybody's connected, but I never had that growing up. So sometimes I will still get mad, but it took me a while to work through that, to understand, okay, well, you know what? My family that's in my life right now doesn't have to be blood. They can be a school, a church, a foundation. My partner that helped me build Redemption House of the Bay Area, which is a nonprofit in Sonoma County, He's family as well. So it doesn't have to be blood. It can be people that are higher power, which is believing God he placed in my life to stand in that gap. Just growing up, it was a lot of physical abuse. There, there was a couple of times when I was growing up, there was some sexual encounters that took place, sexual abuse. And I didn't know how to speak. I didn't know who to reach out to. I didn't know I was supposed to say anything. Like When I was 14 years old, I was also raped by an older man. And his friend was driving the car. And I didn't know what consent was. I didn't know what good touches, bad touches was. I just knew that any attention was... Good attention. So I figured that what this man was doing was okay because I liked him and it was attention. But he was a grown man and I was fourteen, so it's rape. I remember when the physical abuse was taking place with my mother. I've also developed a mindset of being suicidal. So I was suicidal and I was cutting my arms and I was doing things because I felt like if I disappeared or if I end up in the hospital, somebody will love me. Somebody will give me that affection. Somebody will pay attention to me. I felt like I wasn't heard, so I was acting out in different ways so I could get somebody to hear me. And I thought it was normal, the physical abuse. It was normal because it happened at a very young age. So this is something that happens all the time. But in reality, it's not supposed to. It doesn't. It's not okay. But also today, I choose to forgive. I choose to forgive my grandmother. I choose to forgive my mother. I choose to forgive everybody that had hurt me growing up because it helps me to regain my power and it sets me free. It's not even about them. It's for me. Eventually, I did have the courage to call the police because there was one situation where me and my mom gone to a huge fight and she poured chemicals all over my body and in my mouth. Um, and a little voice told me, fight, fight for yourself. And I finally had the courage to do so because there was many times in the past where my dad wasn't in a home. He was living somewhere else. Uh, he would come here and there, but he wasn't there like I needed him to be. And so when I did call him and say, hey, this is happening, mom keeps hitting me. Like, can you come get me? He would tell me to pack up my stuff. And he said, you know what? I'm gonna come get you. Pack up your stuff. And then I would pack up, like, it was kind of like Christmas to me. I was packing up, ready to finally get out of the place I was living in. And then he'll call and cancel. And so that told me I couldn't trust anybody. Promises were meant to be broken. And so when I had this courage to call law enforcement, I was really trusting that they were going to have my back because nothing else worked or nobody else heard me. I remember getting out of the bathroom because it happened in the bathroom. I ran downstairs. I was scared because I didn't know if I was even going to make it to the phone because I didn't know if she was going to grab me, throw me or whatever. I was really scared. I had the courage to grab the phone and call police. So I called law enforcement and they came and I even yelled at her, you're going to jail for a very long time. I even said that to her, I was confident. So they came and they gave me a business card. I said, go connect with a social worker. And I remember it was a, a man and a woman officer and they walked out. They left me there with my mother. And so when they walked out, I knew at that very moment, you know what? I can't even trust law enforcement. Can't trust anybody. At that very moment, I felt like I wasn't even heard for sure. Like nobody was hearing me. And so they walked out the door and thank God nothing happened. But still, like you just never know for any other child that's been through that. You just don't know what's going to happen. The law enforcement doesn't hear them. They walk out the door. You don't know if their abuser is going to continue to abuse them for making that call. It's just very scary. So that's why I do what I do too, to educate law enforcement, to look for the signs. Not let any child fall through the cracks. It doesn't matter what's the color of our skin or if we're in a rich neighborhood or a poverty neighborhood. It doesn't matter. Like we're all equal. Eventually, I did see the social worker and they ended up placing me in the foster care system. But the parents I was with were also abusive. So I didn't feel safe there. I didn't feel safe on my mom. So I literally ran away and went to my dad's uh, doorstep and I knocked on a door and he opened the door and he seemed to let me in. Well, I had all this PTSD. I had all this trauma, depression. I was angry. I had a lot of stuff that I was going through. And I just needed some stability so I can work on those core issues. But when I got with him, he was an alcoholic. And my dad's like an ex gang member. He doesn't have healthy parenting skills either. So when I got with him, he wasn't able to meet my needs the way I needed him to be there for me. So when I was going to school, I would dish classes. I started dishing classes. I started hanging out with older men. I started to experiment with ecstasy and marijuana, education was not a thing for me. It was not a priority because it was never a priority Mm -hmm. growing up. These are all red flags and nobody's seen the signs. Nobody noticed anything. There was one therapist that did pull me in the office and ask questions because she noticed the cuts on my arm. And so till this very day, I still talk about her. I don't know her name, but I still highlight the fact that she asked questions. So I always encourage people to ask questions when you see something like that. But besides that, it was like nobody else seen anything.
0: Elizabeth, how do you ask that question though without seeming intrusive or wanting to offend someone? What's a good way to go about asking someone when you do see maybe self-harm signs?
1: This is an individual you're able to see here and there, like building that rapport, just checking in with them. Hey, how are you doing today? What's going on? Like, how's life? And eventually when the time comes, when you feel like the walls came down a little bit, you can ask them, okay, you know what human trafficking is? Ask them what that is or ask them, hey, do you know what trauma is or do you know what physical abuse is or do you know what sexual abuse is? Like asking that question when the wall has came down while you're building that rapport. Not assume that they experienced it, but just ask. And then eventually they'll loosen up and they'll still say either they do know or they don't know or they do know, but they're going to play like they don't know. So you don't get too close, but just kind of planting those seeds. And eventually when the time comes, they're going to open up.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you're at your dad's. Were you still yeah. there? Did you stay there even though he couldn't meet your needs or where did you move on somewhere else?
1: So I was there literally for about four or five months. And then when I was in front of my dad's job, I was waiting for my dad to pick me up. And then this man comes out of nowhere. He comes up to me. He's tattooed up, bald headed. He looked young to me, but he was 27 years old. He told me he was 19 when he talked to me. And later down the road, I found out he was 27, but I was already in love with him. So I was 15 at this time. And he came up to me and said, hey, what's your name? You're gorgeous. You're beautiful. Can I get your number? Like all this stuff that somebody with the background like mine wants to hear. So when I heard that, he literally pulled me in. That was like his phrase to pull me in. I gave him my number and we started to communicate through cell phone. And so eventually he will pick me up. I will tell my dad I was going to go with a friend, but he will pick me up. He would take me to go get something to eat. He would take me to go to nice places to hang out. He would take me to go smoke marijuana. He started giving me ecstasy. And so then when I got a little bit more comfortable with him, he started taking me to hotel rooms. It would be like random hours of the night. It would be like 10 o'clock at night or one o'clock in the morning. And I would go to the window with him. And the person at the front desk would see us, check us in, and that was it. And so that's why I do what I do too, like to bring awareness around hotel clerks, like look out for the signs. Because a lot of times, like when I was with him, I had my hoodie on and I was looking down. You can tell he was empowered over me. And so seeing those type of body gestures or seeing those eye movements, look into all of that and seeing, okay, well, let's further investigate or maybe letting your manager know you see something that was a red flag. And so eventually he would take me to hotel rooms. And this is where he will give me ecstasy and of course smoking marijuana. And I will get so high to the point where I couldn't comprehend what was happening. There was times where I, I was seeing things, I was seeing people. i would be literally stuck in the bed and couldn't move because I was so loaded. And this is where he will come and sodomize me or have me sexually perform. And this happened on multiple occasions. And so because of that, it's like a trauma bond. He was actually getting me to come closer to him. Like When you have sex with your perpetrator, That's another form of manipulation and trauma bonding. It's like another connection. And so he was like my boyfriend, my protector, my dad figure, all in one. And this is what an adolescent with a broken background like mine wants, is that protection I love and that stability. So I thought I had it in this man. Eventually, he took me to my dad's and I said, dad, this is my new boyfriend. And my dad was drinking, so he was a little drunk. so I said, dad, this is my new boyfriend. And he said, "Okay, well, as long as you wear protection and don't take her to projects, you can be with my daughter. So he basically gave me the green light to be with him. And so when that happened, I decided, well, there's no reason for me to be here. Like, I'm not happy here. I thought coming here to my dad's was going to give me that happiness I need. But it didn't. So I was like, well, this man I'm with is my happiness. That's what I thought. And so eventually, I remember packing up my stuff, and at 2 o'clock in the morning, he was outside waiting for me. So This is when I ran away from my dad's, and I went to
0: go be with him. Okay, so you're, and you're still 15 at this point? Mm-hmm. 15 t- turning 16, yes. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey, <sighs> well... So, you run away. What does that look like? You went to go stay with him at his house. Like, what happened? So, he lived with his mother in the city, San Francisco. It
1: was Silver and Mission. And then he would take me to the other places, like a friend's house. Or I had some friends in school that were experimenting and partying with drugs, and I would go stay with them. It wasn't like that place. Like, we were in different places. And he took me to Sacramento at one point to be at his dad's location. And at his dad's place, it was like a dope house because everybody was smoking meth. Everybody was getting loaded. People were coming in and out. And he took me there as well. Now, I want to say when I was there, that was my first experiment with meth. And because of that introduction of meth, I started getting really hooked on it. And I became addicted to meth for about 12 years.
0: Oh, wow. Yeah. So he obviously knew your age. You did not know his because he lied. Was he grooming you? Did he know what he was doing? Or was he just honestly wanting a girlfriend?
1: No. So I look at this as grooming. He's seen how loyal I was first. I think he was just trying to check out the scene. Like he was just trying to see how I was going to be, how I was going to react and how I was going to be with him in a relationship. And then he noticed how much loyalty I had. And so that's where they feed off of that. Okay. She's so loyal. She wants loyalty back. So let me feed off of that. Let me see what can be done through that because he already had a stable girlfriend. And I didn't find this out until later. Like I was with him for a couple months and I realized he had an older girlfriend that was around his age. And she was in school. She had a career. Totally different from my type of trauma. He was with her for two years. So I found out about that. But when I tried to leave and I called my dad, dad, can I come home? He told me, no. He said, if you don't come home tonight, don't come back at all. He gave me a limit. Like you can't give a child that's calling for help an ultimatum. You basically say, Babe, where are you at? Are you safe? Just come home. However you can, come home. You don't just tell a child, don't come back at 10 p.m. Don't ever come back. So when he said that to me, I felt like I had no choice but to stay where I was at. And so I ended up staying with this man, even regardless he had a girlfriend. And so it was more like she wanted to see what I was going to do for him. And then eventually when I was stuck with him and I had no choice, that's when we started getting into selling drugs. And it's all part of the honeymoon phase and the grooming process. And that's when he started teaching me how to sell drugs. To basically go down that path of becoming a trafficking victim. Wow. So, when he started to take me to 16th admission and mission and started teaching me how to be a mule, so I was holding on to drugs in areas of my body, like in my mouth and my other areas of my body. And because of this, when I started getting older and I was selling my own drugs or selling drugs for another trafficker, I was learning how to put drugs in my body. And that's because I started at that age when my first trafficker trained me. So, he got arrested and then sent a female to me. And they were both friends. So I figured I could trust her because she was his friend. So when she came to me, she said, Hey, you need to make money. And I said, okay. And I thought we were going to sell drugs or rob people. That's what I thought we were going to do. She said, no, you're going to sleep with men. I, said, I don't want to sleep with men. And she said, well, that's what you have to do. And so it's part of the rules, part of the game. And that's just the rules of the streets. You have to listen to them. And so I did, as I was told, because I was scared. And so she started showing me what to do. I remember we were walking and she would walk with me, like literally by my side. She would tell people, hey, back off. This is my wifey. This is my wifey. And I'm like, I should call me your wifey. And now I understand that's one of the terms that uh, traffickers use for their victims if it's a female trafficker. So she was a female trafficker. And at one point she was a victim herself. She was victimized and trafficked herself. I'm not sure what the traffickers for the men's perspective, but for the women's perspective, at one point she was victimized. and to end that and to regain her power, she levels up to being a trafficker, so that way she doesn't have to do it anymore. So she's using other individuals to do that work. Now she's the trafficker, and so when she was taking me down on the streets and calling me her wifey and telling people to back up, I didn't understand. Eventually, she was ha- selling me to cars. She was selling me to purchasers. Not too long ago, people were calling them Johns, but the right term is purchasers, and these are the men that are purchasing the sex. And so she would take my money. I thought that money I was making was going to be for me to take care of me and put money on my boyfriend. But in reality, she was taking my money. And so eventually he got out. When he got out, I felt so much guilt and shame. I was embarrassed because of what I was doing. I thought he didn't know. But in reality, he knew because they were from the same prison gang because they were both in prison gang. Um, they were on the same team. They were both friends. And so what he did was had her come and train me up. So when he got out, he can continue it. So basically when I told him what happened, he cried, he manipulated me. He said, Oh my God, I can't believe you backstabbed me like that. You did that. And I can't believe you. Well, if you did it for her, do it for me. Show me how much you love me. So he pulled that card on me. And when he said that, I said, of course. And I thought in my head, well, if I did it for her, he's right. If I did it for her, which I don't even love her or care about her. Why can I not do it for him? He's my man. I love him. So I felt like it was a duty. I had to do that for him. So I ended up going with him. He took me to the 20th of Shaquille again, 17th and Cap in the city, San Francisco. And he dressed me up and started selling me two cars, selling me to purchasers and cars. I remember we would go to broke down apartments. He was down in the hallway while I was being raped right by these men. And these men would rotate on me. So the one man would come in, rape me and leave and another man would come in. So it was like rotation. And I would sit there and have to detach myself because I couldn't be there physically Having this happen to me, like these men, like sometimes the men stunk. Like it was like the environment was sticky and it was painful because like these men don't care. So I had to learn to how to have intimate moments with my husband. I had to learn to embrace sex as something beautiful, not traumatic and not bad. I had to learn to retrain my thought and my body to be okay with intimate moments with my spouse because of that trauma when I was little. I was 16 when it was happening. I was a child. It was very painful and traumatic for me. I remember at the end of the night, he would take me home and he would bathe me. He would wash my body and he would tell me he loves me and he would tell me you're beautiful, you're safe. So everything that happened throughout the day went out the window, and I was like, okay, he loves me. That's fine. So all of this was okay. It was worth it because he's telling me he loves me right now. So I felt some type of connection with him at the end of the night. But then it repeated the same day. It was like a repeated cycle. And then there was times where. He told me just for now, one more time, so we can make enough money, we can go buy drugs and sell the drugs. So that's mainly what we did was sell drugs. He said, so we need to do this so we can get enough money to buy drugs and sell it. But then again, I would go back out there. It was like repetitive. It was always one more time. I felt like every time I was out there, a piece of me died because I was getting my innocence robbed from me. And because of all this trauma, I was addicted to meth. So I was addicted to meth. So I ended up leaving my first trafficker. So he ended up getting arrested again. And that's how I was able to get out of that situation with him because he got arrested and got deported. And so now I took this mindset of selling my body as a form of, of making money, as a way of surviving, as a way of living. So this is called a survival sex at this point. And so I'm still trafficking myself, even though I took it into my adult years and I'm an adult now. I'm still trafficking ch- myself because this is what, the way I learned how to make money. And so I didn't have a resume. I didn't have a high school diploma. I was a high school dropout. I had transferable skills that I'm using today that I was using on the street. But at that time, I didn't know any of that. Like, I just thought that I was always going to be an addict. I was always going to be a drug dealer because I was also selling drugs as well. I was always going to be a prostitute. That was the term I was using and calling myself at that time. So eventually, as I got older, I, I, in and out of correctional facilities, I started getting arrested for selling drugs for other different types of crimes. I went to Valley State Prison when I was 23 years old, hooked on meth to just live in this life of crimes and living on the streets and surviving. And at the age of, uh, I think before I went to prison, this is where I met my third trafficker. And so it was both sex trafficking and labor trafficking. He would give me a large amount of drugs to sell for him. So I thought that by getting that drugs for him to sell, I thought it was a win-win. I thought I had just arrived and that this was the number one goal for me was to get this much drugs to sell so I can supply my addiction so I can pay for whatever I need and then also don't have to sleep with men anymore because I'm having my drugs come in to take care of my needs. So I don't have to sleep with any more men to, to get money to survive. Also, and will give me drugs to sell. I would have to have five days to get the drugs off and have the money for him. If I didn't have his money within five days, there was consequences. He would threaten me. He would threaten people that were close to me. So there was consequences if I didn't have his money. I remember there's multiple occasions where I would get in his car give him his money I had for him and he would give me more drugs to sell. But before I get out the car, I had to sexually perform. I had to give him oral sex or I had to give him other types of sex. And so this is a form of sex trafficking when you're giving sex in exchange for something valuable. So at that point, it was for drugs and my freedom because I couldn't get out the car until I gave him what he wanted. Eventually, there's times where I got arrested for his drugs. And so I would do my time because at that time, the term was, you don't snitch. That was the language in the street. You're not supposed to snitch. And when you're labeled a snitch, it's all bad for you. And so whenever I, I would get arrested with his drugs, I would do the time, get out and be in debt with him. Even though I just got arrested with his drugs and I didn't tell, I still was in debt. So it was like a revolving door and a never ending debt that I had to pay off. So eventually at the age of 26, I got arrested for the last time. And this is where I had my son. My my son was three months old when I got arrested for the last time. And that was my turning point. And that's where I decided I can no longer continue that lifestyle. I needed to do something different for my son and give him a chance. And this is where I, I told the truth, cooperated with the police and told him who I was working for because it was my third trafficker. And so that was my turning point.
0: Wow. So how is that 10 years you were in it? From a 15 to 26. So a little over 10 years. Wow. And like, yeah. That's just so much to go through at such a young age and for so long. And like when you're sitting here, I'm just thinking, gosh, she's so amazing. There's just a strength that you have and I can sense your passion for it as well. And I love the fact that you are a victim of it, but you don't have a victim mindset. There's a difference in the two and that you are using everything that you went through to help others Get through. And yeah. I just love that. Thank you so much for sharing. So, you are an author, correct? Yes. I saw that called, the book is called Purified in the Flame. And that is your story about being a sex trafficking survivor.
1: Yes, it's my memoir. And I talk about from the very beginning, like the trauma that started when I was four years old. And I talk about all the highlights of every trauma that I've experienced growing up, what led me to becoming high risk for human trafficking. And then I talk about the different types of trafficking that I experienced and the people that are involved. And I talk about how I was able to get out of that life. I was able to embrace my power, find my healing. A lot of people ask me, well, how do you be in a marriage? Like, how do you have a husband? Like, how do you be a healthy mom? How do you go to school? So many questions people ask me, how do you do that with that type of trauma? And I explain all of that in my book, how I was able to overcome all of that and heal from that and turn it around.
0: That's amazing. And why we're talking about that, I actually want to dive into that because I can see why they asked that question is oh my gosh, how did she get from A to Z? So yeah. what are a few things that you did to be able to experience that type of trauma and then be a mom, have a career, be married?
1: It was my turning point when I realized that I needed to do something different. So that was number one, like realizing, okay, this has to stop this cycle that I'm repeating in my life needs to stop because it's more like a generational cycle that happens within families and realizing that I have to stop it for the sake for the rest of my life and also for the sake of my children. I have to end it. Number two is being open to receive resources, being open to let your guard down, let your guard down, receive resources, receive love from others that are genuine love and that are real unconditional love, receiving that and also connecting with the higher power. So my higher power is God. I believe in God. And that's what helps me to understand life from a bigger picture. Look at life from a different angle. And the number 3 is not just coming out of that life and then basically be like okay, I'm going to move on. Let's forget about the past completely and let's dissociate from that. It's actually getting out of that life. Okay, now let's do something about it. Let's use it for purpose. Let's use this as fuel. So I can help others. So others don't have to go down that path I went through, not just forget about my past. I'm using it for a purpose now. And so it's not going to go to waste. And so that's number three. That's what
0: had helped me get to where I'm at today. Was there a turning point or something that happened or an aha moment that got you there? Because honestly, not everyone's like that. So how was it that you took this pain and you turned it into purpose and you turned it into helping others?
1: I ended up getting five years between two different counties. So It was my last arrest. And that was my turning point where I decided I needed to do something different. And then when I got, when I did the five years between two different counties, I ended up getting out and I got some healing while I was incarcerated. Like I was able to do a program in there, get my GED, start doing the healing process while I was incarcerated. But when I got out, I went to a program called Women's Recovery Services. And every counselor that was there, every staff member that was there was literally helping me in my healing journey. And I seen how much they loved giving back and how they loved helping us to reach our full potential. And I got a lot of my healing in that program. So when I completed it, I was like maybe probably learn how to walk and very hungry to do something different and to help people because of me seeing others do the same thing and helping others achieve their goals or reach their full potential. So that motivated me to do something different and I wanted to learn. I didn't know how, but I was ready to do so. So that's where I went to school and got a lot of education and I just flourished.
0: Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. So we kind of talked about what it is, some of the signs. Who's really at risk?
1: So I definitely want to highlight individuals that experience any type of trauma. So any type of physical trauma, sexual trauma, emotional trauma, anybody that's coming from poverty, anybody that's involved in gangs, high risk for trafficking, because I've worked with survivors in the past where they were in gangs and they had to pay off their gang's debt. I've actually worked with survivors in the past where they came from a good home, but they didn't have a dad in the home. And their dad was always gone, even though he was there, but he, he was always gone. He wasn't presently there for her. So she became a high risk for trafficking because she was looking for the dad figure or that, that void she had inside. She's looking to fulfill it. Or even if you have disabilities, you are a high risk for trafficking because traffickers prey on our disabilities. That could be when you have ADHD, any type of PTSD, anxiety, fears. They prey off of that because it looks good at first when they're coming to help you meet your needs. But then again, they trick you. It gets ugly. If you're coming from a background of of immigration, you're not documented and you don't have any papers with Redemption House. We work with survivors in the community where we hear stories where they're going to be reported if they don't do what they're supposed to do. So the fear of being deported. So they're high risk for trafficking if they don't perform sexually or perform in labor trafficking and they're being threatened to be deported back or ICE is going to be called on them. Background of foster care, if you've been in foster care, you're a high risk for trafficking. Addiction, incarceration, all of this type of factors in your life, you're high risk. I also want to highlight too, like if you're coming from women woman of color or men of color, people of color or indigenous backgrounds, those are high risk for trafficking as well. Back in the days when I was being trafficked, I was falling through the cracks because I was a woman of color. But now it's like we're learning to be more equal with everybody, but that's just what it is. And that's how society we live in.
0: Yeah. And in what ways do traffickers get their victims?
1: So it can be any location. A trafficker can lure their victims through any location, but mainly like at bus stops, at railroad stations or train stations. It can be at the mall. It can be schools. I worked with drivers in the past where they were recruited through schools, through their peers. That can happen online. It can happen through apps, TikTok, Instagram, Snapchat, there's an OnlyFans app now mm-hmm. that people are sometimes selling their feet through this app where they're making money. It can happen to do that. It can happen through peers, connections. In reality, nowadays, it can happen anytime. It can happen in casinos. It can happen at hotels. Like, it just can happen at any time. So that's why I'm understanding the
0: science. Wow. And I think from watching the news, seeing stuff or hearing stuff, and then having kids, I've always made them very aware of the online, right? Because I think when online really took off, social media and stuff, that was a new way for them to find people. And so I've always told my kids if you don't know who the person is who's messaging you, you don't respond. And then having access to their social media accounts. And I'll even have people message me. And I am not a dumb woman. And I just got a message recently that's like, oh, your profile photo reminds me of someone who was very near and dear to my heart. And I'm like, I don't know you. Yeah, You're but- reaching and maybe it's true, but I'm not even going to go there. I'm going to delete that message. Like, I'm not even going to try and open exactly. the door to that type of stuff. Or entertain it. Entertain yes. it. And then the other one I remember hearing a lot about was modeling. Yes. Modeling and then come here for your shoot and then they disappear. That
1: happens as well. So that's called CEO Pippin. So it happens through modeling as well, but people that are coming from poverty or just like wanting a better life or or motivated to do something with modeling and feel like that they have a chance or they have a shot, they can be lured that way as well.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I know you talked about some in your story, but what are some of the signs that we can look for maybe with someone who is involved with this?
1: Like whatever field you're working in, if you're working in the human services field or sociology field. Or if you're just in the neighborhood and are you working at a store or a gas station or wherever, or a hotel and you see like an individual that comes and they're not making eye contact with you, that's a red flag. If you're not able to engage with that individual, or you're not able to build a report because sometimes you see people and you only see them one time. There's an 800 number that you can call for trafficking to report stuff like that. So if you see them not making eye contact with you and they're always looking on the floor, that's a red flag. So you want to report that to your local agency or to that 800 hotline. If you see that they have bruises all over their body, right? If there's somebody you're building a rapport and you see them one day with no bruises and then all of a sudden the next day they have bruises, that's a red flag. And so you just want to ask questions when you feel like it's the right time to ask asking questions or if you feel like it's best to report it and do that. Always stay connected to that 800 hotline or report it to your local organization that does work around trafficking. Or if you see them being with somebody that's older than them, if they're younger and they're way older than them, that's a red flag. If you see they're with somebody hovering over them and you come across them and they're not speaking, that person speaking for them, that's a red flag. Or if you see them out and about odd hours of the night, two, three, four in the morning, that's a red flag. Or for the women, if you see them wearing explicit clothes, like if they're in the short dress and high heels, showing a lot of skin, it's a red flag as well, like explicit clothes wearing. If you see adolescents where they're in school and you know they're coming from a poverty background, but all of a sudden they have nice nails, they have really flossy jewelry, and they have a brand new iPhone, but you know they're coming from poverty, that's a red flag. If you're working in the nurse's field, if you're working in the hospital field, and you see an individual that comes all the time at like odd hours of the night, like two, three, four in the morning, 10 o'clock at night, and you see them all the time in the ER, for like stds or a women problem or they're pregnant they're constantly getting an abortion that's something to look out for that's the red flag and so there's yeah. so many other red flags out there i can go on and on but like i would encourage everybody to do a webinar a seminar whatever trainings we for right, house offers a one-hour training a two-hour training and a four-hour training around traffic awareness so i would just encourage people to get educated yeah
0: so if someone is dealing with sex trafficking, where can they go for help? Where can they start? If they just like, this is just not the life for me. I need to get out. I want to get out.
1: So sometimes they're in situations where they're not able to get out at that moment. But when they're able to, they can reach out to organizations, nonprofits, businesses, all need to be trained and need to have a flyer of the 800 hotline that's on the wall. So that way, when a, a trafficking victim wants to get out of their life and they she goes into this organization, wherever she's at. She sees the number so she can call when she's able to and get that support and get that help. So connecting with the 800 hotline, nonprofits that do this work need to put themselves out there more, <laughs> putting flyers on poles, street outreach. So letting the community know that they're there. So what, that way, when a victim's ready, she can go and reach out to that, that nonprofit for support. The reality, you can reach out to law enforcement, but the reality that's not going to really happen because there's a lot of fear around that that mentality like well i can't go to police because that means i'm gonna have to tell and i don't want to snitch so there's so much taboo around that but of course i'm gonna say or reach out to your local law enforcement sometimes that might not happen yeah so that's why nonprofits are are frontliners they're the frontline warriors the people the organizations the point of contact hotels stores all of them anybody that is out there that people can just walk in and purchase things like having those type of numbers on the wall so that way it's in bathrooms local bathrooms having that in the local bathrooms but so people can see the number and it's pitchable.
0: I saw that you were woman of the year for Sonoma County of this year. Yes. So congrats on that. That's amazing. I guess yes. it was for all the work that you've been doing with this. Are you a, a, currently a social worker investigator? Yes. That's the job I'm doing right now. Yeah. I became employed with them April. Yes. Amazing. And you're also a founder of Redemption House of the Bay. So can you give us just a high level overview of what that foundation does?
1: So me and my partner, Lisa, we're both co-founders of Redemption House of the Bay Area. What this organization does is that we help other survivors find their way to freedom, find their way to healing and live a productive, healthy lifestyle. We do this through street outreach. So we go to the streets once a month here in Sonoma County. We're also planning to go to San Francisco and start doing street outreach out there as well. So we go to the streets and we meet the victims on the streets and we give them purses. We connect with Julie Purse Project where they give us all these beautiful purses with all the hygiene inside and little inspiration notes that gives them hope while they're out there. So we give them the purses, we give them blankets, we give them slippers, water bottles, whatever essential stuff they need while they're out there. It's like we're meeting them where they're at. We're letting them know they're not forgotten and we love them. And we also let them know that we're also survivors. So we're not just coming out here trying to be volunteers. Like we're survivors as well. But we've been there. We know their pain. But we want them to know that they're loved and they're not forgotten. And so we do that through, during our street outreach. And we also do, do a human trafficking awareness presentations. Where, like I was mentioning, we do one-hour trainings, we do two-hour trainings, and we do four-hour trainings where we implement our stories in it as well. Because it's really important. Yeah, hear the statistics, hear the data, hear the front flags, the risk factors, all of that. But it's also good too to hear from a personal perspective, someone that actually went through it. And so we talk about that in our trainings as well. We also do mentorship. So there's a lot of women we work with in our organization that we're actually mentoring one-on-one, and we're helping them and find their purpose in life. Like, what does that look like? They're healing, embracing them, encouraging them to share their truth when they're ready. But this January, we're having our first annual fundraiser in Sonoma County. And we have three survivors that are sharing their stories. And that's what it's all about, is helping them find their purpose, using their pain for purpose, finding their passion and giving back. And they're all excited to give back in this perspective, in this way. And so we also do our human trafficking peer-led support group. So me and Lisa both facilitate this group. We have other survivors that come together twice a month and we share dinner. We do seeking safety in this group, seeking safety, evidence-based material where we're teaching the women how to live a healthy lifestyle, how to have healthy boundaries, how to have coping skills, and how to heal from their trauma. And also, we give them a space in that environment to share their stories. It's so powerful of a group of women coming together with similar backgrounds and feeling comfortable with each other to share our stories, embrace one another, and to understand that we're not alone. We're not doing life alone. We're together. It's so empowering to know that this group is there for all of us to come together. And so I would encourage everybody to just check out our website. So it's redemptionhouseofthebayarea.org. You'll see all the everyday functions that we do as well.
0: Yeah. And I want to mention Lisa really quick, because Lisa is also the co-founder of the organization. And when I looked into it, she is also a survivor herself. Yeah.
1: So I was doing a presentation on trafficking awareness and she was in the audience. When I was doing the presentation and I started sharing my story, that's how she resonated. It was like, oh my gosh, I have. And trafficked myself. We met up, we connected. I told her, yes, you're survivor trafficking. And we just been hitting the ground with boots on ever since. <laughs> that's amazing. So, yeah, she's a survivor herself. And we're both a survivor. So that's why this organization is very powerful because it's survivor-led
0: something, and it could just be semantics. I don't know, but I had cancer and something when people would always say, Oh, you're a cancer survivor. And I'm like, yeah, in the first couple of years, but now I'm a cancer thriver. And I think you have graduated from survivor to thriver for sure.
1: Yes. I, li- I like to use the term also overcomer. So I love th- driver and overcomer.
0: <laughs> yes, for sure. And I also saw that you guys are raising money. Is it to have a home for women to come to get out of sex trafficking and help them get on their feet? Correct? That's what you're doing?
1: Yes. That is the long-term goal, but that's going to be a process. Okay. So we're working towards opening up a safe home here in Sonoma County. But in the meantime, we're doing other stuff down to the Brother Redemption House to Put us out there to also let the women know that we're here for support and to offer these resources.
0: Before we close, is there any last minute thoughts or anything that you feel like I didn't ask you and you want to just put out there before we end?
1: So I just want to say, whoever's listening, I would just encourage you to do whatever you can to be part of changing the narrative. Be part of giving hope to others. And by doing that is attending more seminars more trainings, getting educated around this issue, the social justice issue with human trafficking. It's modern day slavery and it's a social justice issue that we're working through right now. So being a part of getting educated around that and whatever you receive from that training or that seminar or whatever you learn, going out and letting your peers know, being that source of information, letting your peers know. Or if you see anything that's going on, pick up the phone and make that phone call to the 800 hotline or to your local law enforcement or to an organization that's helping others get out of that life. So by you doing that, it's changing the narrative for our community helping our community get out of that modern day slavery rather than being a part of the problem.
0: Yeah. I think something that the listeners can do right away is even just share this podcast, this episode, Yes, share it to your social media, share it to a friend, share it with a family member. Sex trafficking can be an uncomfortable topic, but we have to learn to get over that. Yeah. Talk about it. Cause that's the only way that anything is going to happen or change is to push past that discomfort and talk about it anyways. Even if it's an unpopular opinion or view, just got to do it. And try to refrain from that mindset.
1: Well, it's not happening here because I don't see it. That's not true. It is happening. In some cities, it's behind closed doors and it's happening mainly online or very hidden. Or in some bigger cities, it's happening on the street. So even though you don't see it, it's still happening. So just being out of that mindset and knowing, okay, look, we need to talk about this. Let's get educated. So that way, when we do see it, we become part of the solution.
0: Yeah. It has been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much for all the work you do. You are amazing, honestly. Oh, thank you. You're amazing
1: too. And thank you for giving me a platform to do this, to be able to give back.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much. Absolutely. What happened to you is not on you, but what you do with what happened to you is no matter what you've had to endure, You have what it takes to rise above it all and become the person you want to be. The work won't be easy, but in the end, it will be worth it. If you know someone this story might resonate with, send them a link to this episode. Also, tag me on Instagram at Tracy Farron and let me know what part of this story resonated with you the most. The best way to help support this show is to rate, review, and subscribe. Your support means everything. Until next time, rock your kindness.